Well, good morning. How's everybody? Good, good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church and welcome those listening at home. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing well. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in 3 John verses 9 and 10 today. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but being a pastor is a great job, but it's also a really weird job because people don't really know what you do. And so a lot of times when you're visiting with somebody, they'll start to act in kind of a strange way. So I'll visit somebody at their house and they'll hide all their rated R movies, or people will ask me weird questions like, have you ever seen a demon? And I'm like, no, but if you have, you should also probably see a doctor. And so they'll ask weird questions about aliens or demons or whether or not I can resurrect somebody or something weird. And so Lifeway put out a questionnaire for pastors recently to ask what are some of the weirdest questions and requests that you've gotten as a pastor? So here's some of the things on that list. One guy said, I officiated a funeral where the family did the wave and hit beach balls during the service as if to celebrate this guy's life. Another guy said, a church member called to request I euthanize an injured rabbit, okay? That's what we do during the week. We just, we just euthanize animals. That's kind of a pastoral task. A lady brought a chirping bird into a worship service and asked me to ignore it. I like that one. Hey, is that a bird on your shoulder? Yeah, just don't worry about it. Don't worry about it, okay? Uh, my favorite one, I actually know the guy that said this one. He said, I was asked to rub holy oil on a man's stomach to heal a hernia, Okay? So I actually know this guy. This was at another church, and uh, there was a guy that had a hernia. And so they called him, and they said, hey, would you mind praying for my husband? And he said, sure, I'd love to pray for him. And they said, Pastor, would you, would you use some holy oil? The Bible talks about how, you know, if somebody's sick, bring them to the elders of the church, and that they will anoint them with oil. And the pastor was like, well, it's not really about the oil. The oil is symbolic for the Spirit's presence, but sure. So my buddy, he takes the oil and puts it on his hand, and they said, wait, Pastor, actually would you actually rub it on the hernia? And he's like, you realize God's power works regardless of where we put the holy oil, but to appease you. So he did. So he's praying, dear God, please heal this man's tummy. One of the weirder things he's probably had to do. Another pastor said, I was asked to baptize a body at a funeral. That's my favorite one. That is the weirdest request I've ever heard on that. Another pastor said scornfully, I was asked to wear a crushed velvet hat for a wedding. Another pastor said, a church member asked me to put her mother's funeral on my calendar. She wasn't dead. That one I really like too. We think she's going to die by this date, so just make sure you keep Friday free. And then another one, a former pastor of where I used to be a member at Denton Bible Church said, while doing a wedding, the bride threw up on my shoes. He was just standing there and he looks at the bride and she goes, mm, and just throws up right on his shoes, okay? You see, there are good pastors who go the extra mile, but today we're actually going to hear about a bad pastor. I don't know how many sermons you've heard about bad pastors, but one of the things I love that we do here at Parkway is we do what's called expository preaching. We pick a book of the Bible and we just work through those books. And so it causes us to teach on things we normally wouldn't teach on. I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon on what bad pastors look like, but that's what the text is going to deal with today as we look at a bad pastor, a guy named Diotrephes. So let's pray and then we will get into the text. Almighty God, I confess that I'm frustrated just with everything that's going on in the world, and I'm frustrated that uh, you don't do things the way I think you should do them, but I confess that I am stupid and you are not, and so we ask that you would help us trust you more, that we would not uh, seek to be our own gods, because the last time we did that, we fell from Eden, and so would you give us grace as we look at this text, I pray that you would uh, awaken our hearts to see wonderful things in your word. We love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name, amen. Let's look at verse 9 together. It says this. 
I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Let's look at the first phrase there. I have written something to the church. Throughout 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, what are called the Johannine epistles, which just means letters by John, John has been writing these letters to Christians, basically telling them three things. One, stay faithful to true doctrine and watch out for false teachers. Two, walk in righteousness, and three, love one another. That's what we've seen over and over again as we work through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now, there are other letters that John wrote that we don't have. Remember, it's not that everything the apostles wrote is inspired. Every Mother's Day card that Paul or somebody wrote to his mom does not go in Scripture. It's that everything the apostles wrote that God wanted to preserve is what we have in Scripture. And so what John is referencing here is probably something that we don't have. Some scholars think it's 2 John. It's probably not 2 John. It's probably some letter that he has written to several churches. And there's this guy, Diotrephes, who's rejecting John's authority. So just to kind of set the stage for you, you have John, an apostle, one of the big 12, right? So you have John, an apostle, and he's at a church writing a letter to a guy named Gaius, who's at a second church. And then there is a third church that's probably near Gaius, run by a guy possibly named Diotrephes. We'll get into who that is in a second. And that church is not doing well, and Diotrephes is not doing well. So that sets the stage for what John is talking about. John is going to warn Gaius about this particular character. Now, let's see who that is. But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Here we get the troublemaker. Here we get the problem. Let me say it this way. Have you ever been hurt by someone in church? Have you ever had a bad pastor? You better not say now at Parkway. Have you ever had a bad pastor? Have you ever been hurt by the church? Because here's what John would say to you. I have as well. I have as well. Even in the first century, even when the apostles and stuff are still alive, there's problems in the church. That's the nature of the church. The church is great, and then you add sinners, which is the church, and the church becomes broken. So you need to know that Christ's bride will hurt you. Christ will not stab you in the back. He will put you through suffering, but it's for your good, and he will be with you. But his bride sometimes looks more like a harlot, to use biblical imagery, and she will often hurt you. But you can't neglect Christ's bride just because she's hurt you. You ever heard the phrase, it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all? It's better to be a part of Christ's bride and be hurt than never to have been a part of Christ's bride. So John's going to say, there is this problem I have, even in the first century, even as an apostle. He's not immune to people acting like people. And so you get this figure, Diotrephes. Now, who is this figure? His name in Greek is Diotrephes. In English, we say Diotrephes. We don't know much about this character. His name is not mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, unlike John or Gaius or some of these other figures that are mentioned elsewhere. We don't have Diotrephes mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. But there's a little bit that we can know from him just based on his name and based on the context, okay? So first of all, we know that he's male because this is a male name. Second, we know that he's most likely a Gentile and not a Jew, okay? The reason is, is his name, Diotrephes, means nourished by Jupiter or raised by Zeus. So typically, if you're a Jew, you don't name your kids after pagan gods. So he's probably a Gentile convert to Christianity. And what we see here, we, we don't know exactly what his error is, but we see here that he's probably a church leader, he could just be some random guy in a church that stirs up division. We've all known those people. We all have diatrophies in our life. 
but most likely he's a church leader because it says that he's kicking people out of the church. So most people in church history have thought he's either a pastor or uh, an elder, some type of church leader within that church. Now, we don't know exactly what Diotrephes is doing wrong. I mean, we know he's being arrogant and kicking people out of the church. We don't know what his theological error is. In First and Second John, John is very clear what the false teachers are saying. They're saying that we don't need atonement. They're saying that Jesus hasn't come in the flesh. They're saying very clear heresies. We don't really know why Diotrephes doesn't like John's authority. We don't really know exactly what's off in his theology. So before moving forward, let me give you Zach Lee's three steps of theological heresy, okay? Three steps of theological false teaching. Not all false teaching is heresy, but all heresy is false teaching. So let me give you a kind of a grid, and I've even put the words up on the screen that you guys can throw up for different kinds of false teaching, okay? And I made it, I used alliteration because I'm a pastor. Here we have three M's, okay? Major, meaningful, and minor. Major false teaching is where you are so far off you are not even a Christian. This involves major doctrines, things like the Trinity, the deity and humanity of Christ, though he is only one person, the resurrection, the importance of grace, some of these major things. If you don't hold the major tenets of Christianity, you are not a Christian. You are a literal capital H heretic, no matter how much you think you love God in your heart, okay? That's major issues. Those are first tier kind of doctrines. Those are the most important ones, okay? But after that, we have what I would say are meaningful doctrines. Meaningful doctrines are things that you can be wrong on and still be a Christian. Now, you'll be offending God to the degree that you're off, and you won't walk in as much joy as God has for you if you're off, but you can still be a Christian. Meaningful doctrines would be things like Calvinism versus Arminianism, different views of how sanctification works, how the covenants fit together right? How we should think of the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant and the Davidic Covenant and that kind of stuff today. Certain ethical issues, etc. So major doctrines, the most important ones, if you're wrong there, you're not a Christian. Meaningful doctrines, you can still be a Christian and be off in some significant areas which will hurt your spiritual life, but you can still be saved. And then the third one are minor doctrines. These would be things that, again, are important, All of Scripture is important. This grid I'm giving you is not something in Scripture. It's just a conceptual tool to help you think about these things. Minor doctrines are things like mode of baptism, church government, certain features about the end times, etc., okay? Now, to some extent, we're all off in our theology. I feel like I will get to heaven and God will be like, you were 70% right, right? But then I'll say, well, how, how, what about Tim Hollis? And they'll say only 60%. So you beat Tim, which is the goal for all of us in our theology to, uh, to beat Tim. So we're all gonna be off a little bit. There are all times in our lives where we've said something that is false, and that is a small degree of false teaching, but that's not what John is probably thinking when it comes to diatrophies. Diatrophies is probably off in a major doctrine or at least a meaningful doctrine. If it was just a minor thing, John probably wouldn't be calling him out in Scripture. It is probably one of these two bigger areas. Now, keep that in mind because we're going to come back to this kind of stuff here in a second. Now, we see two problems up front with diatrophies. If you look at your text, here's what we see. First of all, arrogance. Arrogance. It says that he puts himself first, which is ironic because Titus 1.7 would say this of a church leader. For an overseer, as God's servant, must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant. So the first thing that we see, the first mark of a bad pastor that John's gonna give us is that they put themselves first. They are not about serving the sheep, they are about their glory. 
They are about their ministry. They're about their name and their renown. And we see that with Diotrephes. The devil falls because of pride and so does Diotrephes. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna give you some marks to look for today of arrogant pastors. Because you might not always be at Parkway, you might go to another church, which is totally fine, but we want you to be under good teaching and under godly men. So what we do when we interpret the Bible is we say, what does it mean originally? And then we bring it into today. So let me give you some marks of arrogant pastors. First, they overly promote themselves and their ministries on social media, through conferences, through downloads, Instagram followers, whatever it might be. There's nothing wrong with promoting your church online, but these guys just care about the brand. They just care about the influence and the power. They don't really care as much about the sheep. Another mark of an arrogant pastor, they are practically more powerful than the other elders of the church if they have elders at all. So some churches don't even have a plurality of elders. It's just one guy who calls the shots. But other churches, they have elders, but one guy still practically is more powerful than the other elders. That defeats the whole purpose of having elders. Here at Parkway, we have five elders and nobody has more authority than anybody else, okay? So our elders are Mike, Wade, Dave, Jeff, and myself, and nobody has more authority than anybody else. There are things that I've wanted that the elders have shot down. There are things that Wade has wanted, the elders have shot down. There are things that Dave has wanted, the elders have shot down. There are things that Mike has wanted, the elders have shot down. There are things that Jeff has wanted, the elders have shot down. And that's a good and healthy thing. Because though I trust myself, I trust the room more than I trust myself. But a mark of arrogant pastors is that they just be the lone ranger. Another one is that they are too big to fail. Ask yourself this, if this pastor were to leave this church, would the church just collapse? And if the answer is yes, that's a church that's built its foundation on man instead of God. Another mark of arrogant pastors is they speak with authority on issues on which they are not trained, whether it be medicine, politics, social movements, etc. It's not that they can't speak on those things, but they can only speak to the degree of their education, training, and experience. Another mark of arrogant pastors, they don't personally spend time with most of the people in their church. There's a saying in ministry that the shepherd should smell like the sheep. The idea is that you're hanging out with people enough to where you know them. You know their issues, you know their marriage, you know their kids, you know these kind of things. One mark of an arrogant pastor you'll see today is that they have a big ministry, but they don't actually know their people. They don't know even a majority of the people in their congregation. Another mark is they spend more time promoting their larger ministry than they do working at their actual church. So they're all about their international or their national ministries. Sometimes they have a ministry named after their own name, which always freaks me out but then they don't really spend as much time with their actual church, which is the only thing that's given them authority to speak on these issues anyway. They try to be cool. Listen, you can't make Christianity cool. Do you know why? Because Christianity pushes against worldly values. I can't make anything cool that says, don't sleep around and dress modestly and don't do drugs and don't, do, you, you, don't exalt self, humble yourself, serve others. That's just not going to be cool. And the more a church tries to do that, the lamer they end up looking. It's like trying to be a really awesome like ice cream truck driver. Your profession has hit a ceiling of how cool you can be. Yes, you can put spinners on the ice cream truck and this kind of stuff, but at the end of the day, you drive an ice cream truck. It's the same way with a church. A church, by definition, cannot be cool. They think that relating to culture means holding views that culture agrees with. This is a huge shift you're seeing in modern evangelicalism. We should be relevant to the culture in that we can meet people where they are 
and that we understand the ideas of culture. We're reading the books and watching the movies. We understand what's going on. But being relevant cannot mean that you hold views that culture finds attractive because culture finds evil things attractive. They hold or emphasize things, arrogant pastors do, that 2,000 years of church history hasn't held or emphasized. Those that work under them are afraid to critique them or stand up against them, and they are quick to get rid of dissenting voices. Another mark of arrogant pastors is they talk about discipleship, but don't actually do it themselves. So a lot of pastors will get up and say, we need to make disciples. And you say, who are you discipling? And they're like, my congregation. And I'm like, that's not what I'm asking. Who are you personally discipling? Well, nobody. Well, then practice what you preach. Physician, heal thyself. Or they disciple people that two years later leave the faith, which show that they didn't really disciple them very well. They compromise on certain views they once held with the hope of career advancement. They want to have a big voice in evangelicalism. They want to be a somebody. They want to a platform more than they want to serve. Another mark, they get, and this is something I've seen, this is a weird one, this is a kind of a very specific one. They get easier theology degrees so that they can say they're experts without actually having to learn theology well. If you're doing that, you don't care about feeding the sheep, you care about your resume. I even know guys that have gotten doctorates, not real doctorates, not like a PhD, but like a color by numbers, two-year, no biblical languages, no philosophy, easy things so that you can put doctor on your business card without actually teaching people the Bible. They derive their authority from their job title instead of from their competency. I'm not done. This list keeps going. They are one way to their staff and family and a different way to people in public. The hypocrisy is one of the things that you'll see with arrogant pastors. Here's another one that I love. One of the biggest marks of an arrogant pastor is that they are wrong on a lot of issues. You you understand that being right is not arrogant. You understand that knowing that you're right is not arrogant. If you think that being right and knowing that you're right is arrogant, then Jesus is the most arrogant person ever, okay? Because he makes fun of his opponents and he knows he's right. That's not arrogance. Arrogance is being wrong. It's sinning against God, and when someone rebukes you, instead of repenting, you double down. You dig in your heels. To be wrong is always to be arrogant. It's not right, or it's not wrong in and of itself to be uh, confident in what you believe. They treat the church like a business. Beware of a pastor who reads more Forbes magazine articles than theological journals, and they talk more about leadership than about being a servant. I have found that with a lot of pastors, leadership is what pastors who aren't very good at theology talk about because theology is too hard. That's what I found with some of those guys, okay? Despite the fact that they're not actually doing biblical leadership. Matthew 20, 25 through 28 says this, that the church should not be run like a business. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Zach, we're all called to be leaders. Jesus said servants. Zach, we're all called to be servant leaders. Jesus just said servants. Stop trying to promote self. We're about washing feet. We're about serving others. And a lot of pastors who like to talk about leadership aren't really good at it. The guy I most learned leadership from was a guy that I worked for in the secular world, former army ranger, former police officer, business owner. And here's what I learned about leadership from him. Being a good leader, being a biblical leader means that you do the job that nobody else wants to do. This guy would come in earlier than everybody. He'd leave later than everybody. If somebody needed to fly out to have a meeting right before the weekend and no one else wanted to do it, he would do it. That's biblical leadership where you sacrifice self 
in place of others, where you do the job that nobody wants. You don't want to be a leader because it means your life is worse, if you want to say it that way, okay? It means your life is worse. Okay, that was a lot. That was a lot. I wasn't mentioning anybody in particular, but I just wanted to give you some marks, some things that I've seen generally in evangelicalism. So let's all take a big relaxing non-COVID breath, and we'll get into the second part, okay? What else does diatrophies do? It says this, that he doesn't acknowledge the authority of the apostles, including John. That's the idea, that he doesn't not acknowledge the authority of the apostles, including John. Listen, the second mark you see here of a bad leader is that they drift from the Bible. They drift from the Bible. The, 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 the church is founded upon the prophets, that's the Old Testament, and the apostles, they've all died, that's the New Testament though in their writings, with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. That's what the Bible's going to say, okay? The Bible stands over all of us. The apostles stand over all of us. It doesn't matter our context, doesn't matter our culture, doesn't matter what we want to be true, the Bible stands at the top. It is the thing that critiques everything and it is critiqued by nothing. And not only that, but you have to interpret the Bible the way it's traditionally been interpreted. It's not good enough to just say you believe the Bible. You know who says that? A Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or whoever else. You have to interpret it the way that the, that the church has historically interpreted it. That's why it's the once for all delivered to the saints gospel. You can't just say you believe the Bible. You have to believe the correct interpretation of the Bible, which is, means we're looking, let me, let me say it this way. The best ideas are old ideas, okay? New ideas are good when it comes to medicine and technology, yes and amen, but when it comes to God, morality, family, whatever it might be, the best ideas are old ideas. Truth is not something we're progressing toward. Truth is something in the past. How old is truth? As old as God, because he is truth, okay? And so we should be looking constantly to the past to see what Christians have thought about these things. This is one of the things I do practically in my life. So we've, uh, one of our elders here is what I would consider to be a bit of an elderly elder, okay? So he's a bit older. We have young elders, we have elderly elders, and this one happens to be both because his last name is Young. And so he is both of these. And I will go to Dave, one of our elders, when things are going crazy, and I will ask him, what do you think about this? And here's why I'll ask him that, because he's lived longer than me. I'm just some young, dumb, you know, guy. I don't know what's going on. So I will go to him and I'll say, okay, Dave, you lived through the race issue much longer than I have. You saw the Rodney King riots. You saw stuff right after the civil rights movement. What should I be thinking about this? And it helps give me some good perspective. Or with what's going on with COVID. I'll go to him and I'll say, you've lived through pandemics. Tell me what the bubonic plague was like. And he will tell me. I got his permission to use that joke, by the way, earlier. And he will tell me. He's like, it was tough. I had to take off my medieval armor and all this kind of stuff. And so he will tell me that. And it gives me perspective because he's already lived through it. It helps me, but to realize I'm not the first one to figure out Christianity. I'm not the first one to figure out what's going on in culture. There's nothing new under the sun. So let me look to what is old. Verse 10a. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. Let's look at that first part. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing. Now let me tell you why this is fascinating to me. John is fine calling out people by name in the Bible for others. Wouldn't that be a terrible way to be remembered? If you went down, your name was eternally enshrined because you were one of the bad guys in scripture. But John is totally fine calling out not just false teaching generally, but false teachers by name. I've heard people say you shouldn't do that. I've heard people say pastors should just talk about issues and not call out people by name, but that's not what we see in the Bible. And it's not just here, Paul does the same thing. Look at this, 
2 Timothy 4, 14 through 15. Alexander the coppersmith, that old son of a gun, Alexander the coppersmith, did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him. He warns against it. Yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. 1 Timothy 1.20, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. 2 Timothy 1.15, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. 2 Timothy 4.10, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. 2 Timothy 2, 16 through 18, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to call out some bad pastors by name, because Scripture does. And that's why you guys come to Parkway, because we do stuff like this, Okay. So I'm going to call out some bad teachers to watch out for by name. Now, let me be clear. This list is not comprehensive. There are a lot of people that are bad teachers that are not on this list. Additionally, this isn't just a list of heretics. We actually, in a previous sermon, went through a big list of guys that are literal capital H heretics throughout church history, and today we've already done that, okay? This is also not just people that we disagree with a little bit. Everybody on this list is either denying a major doctrine or a meaningful doctrine. They're people that I'm comfortable telling you, watch out for these people. Doesn't mean you can't listen to them or read their books. It just means if you do, you have to have your discernment glasses on because there's going to be something that's off, okay? So let me read through this list. Uh, Next week, by the way, John is going to commend a guy, a guy named Demetrius, who I guess means he's Greek or Russian or something, but uh, John's going to do that. And so Jeff is probably going to give a list of some people that we like, some good pastors, but because we're dealing with bad pastors today, let me mention some people to watch out for. First, T.D. Jakes over at the Potter's House, who is a literal modalist, which denies the traditional view of the Trinity. Jen Hatmaker, a popular female author and speaker who's recently embraced homosexuality and thinks that it is beautiful in God's eyes. Joel Osteen. Jesus says if you're living your best life now, you're going to hell. That's not what he says, okay? Nadia Boltz-Weber, Joyce Meyer, Rob Bell, Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, Jesse Duplantis, okay? Stephen Furtick, the gospel is not about maximizing your potential and having a sixth set of abs, Stephen. Robert Tilton, Robert Jeffress, and Jerry Falwell Jr. also hit people on the right who have a tendency to do America worship, who thinks the gospel is just all about America, okay? Joseph Prince, Brian Houston, John Gray, Shane Claiborne, Bill Johnson, Benny Hinn, John Hagee, Todd White, Brian McLaren, and I could just keep going, okay? Now, I'll say this in addition to this. There are other people in the evangelical circles that we run in that are not on this list yet, but they will be on this list in five years. But they will be on this list in five years. In the same way that John will say, watch out for this guy. There's some, some, something that's off. There's something that's off. I'm saying, watch out for these guys and others because there's something that's off. Now look at the next phrase there in the first part of verse 10. It says that he's talking wicked nonsense against us. Slander is another mark of false teachers. What they will do is instead of beating you in argument, because they can't beat you in argument, they will slander you. False teachers will slander true teachers, okay? Argument's hard. Thinking is tough. And so what they'll do is instead is they'll name call, like children on a playground. John is having to deal with that back in the day, and we have to deal with that today as well. People have done that here to Parkway. 
There was a rumor that Jeff had baptized his daughter before she was one year old that went around at one point. There was a rumor that Parkway wouldn't allow anyone here who's been divorced, which is ridiculous. We have a lot of divorced people because God is gracious. There was a rumor that Parkway thought that we were the only church doing things correctly. That is not true at all. There are a bunch of churches doing things correctly. It's not always your big brands, but there are a lot of churches that are doing things correctly. There was a rumor here that we thought that it was wrong for women to be involved in ministry, that we were kind of a he-man woman haters club, which is also not true. We allow women to do what the church has always allowed women to do. We don't allow them to be elders or to teach over men in the gathered assembly because the Bible forbids that. And by the way, so is 2,000 years of church history, Protestant, Catholic, and Greek Orthodox. We're just being Christians here. But other than that, women are free to do anything else in ministry. The, the, the opportunities for you if you're a woman are endless. I personally have been slandered. I've been called a misogynist because of my view that a woman couldn't be an elder. I've been called a homophobe because I taught that homosexuality is sin. I've been called a child and immature, and here's why I was called that. I agree with that one. (laughs) But let me tell you why I was called that. I was called that for holding correct doctrine from a guy who was drifting. But I, I agree with the critique, nevertheless. I was called two weeks ago, I was called a racist. I didn't say anything or tweet anything, literally. I didn't do anything. A woman called me a racist just because I'm white, okay? That happened two weeks ago. To quote Doug Wilson, today a racist is anyone who's winning an argument against a leftist. I've been called mean, controversial, and I've been called several curse words that I'm not going to say out loud, okay? Now, some of these, some of these titles I actually enjoy. I've been called dangerous one time, which that's my middle name, Zach, dangerously. Like, it even moves into dangerously. I've been called overly intellectual. May we all be overly intellectual. For a God who's infinite, the demands that we know his word, may we all be overly intellectual. I've been called too objective, that I see things too black and white, too clear, Come on, Zach, don't we know that God just gave us this gray mystery book of words in the Bible that we're not supposed to know what it means with confidence? No, I think nobody's more objective than God. And then four times, people have randomly told me that I remind them of the superhero Deadpool, okay? Now, I don't know anything about superheroes, so I'm not commending a show to you or anything like that, but people have come up and I say, what does that mean? And they say, he's a sarcastic superhero, and I say, that's my kind of guy. That's my kind of guy, okay? But one of the things that false teachers will do is instead of debating, instead of engaging in argument, instead of being willing to repent, they will take part in slander. Maybe somebody has slandered you. Maybe somebody has called you names because of your faith or because of some position that you've taken where you didn't deserve to be slandered. People will slander false teachers too, but they deserve it. False teachers will slander true teachers, though we don't deserve it. But Jesus says this, Matthew 5, 11 through 12. Blessed are you when others revile you, whether this is you or John, this applies and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what people will do is instead of engaging in argument, they will name call or they'll say that you're being mean just because you care about truth. So let me give you one of my favorite quotes of all time from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He says this, bold-hearted men, are always called mean-spirited by cowards. Bold-hearted men are always called mean-spirited by cowards. Let's look at verse 10b, second half of verse 10. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Diotrephes is rejecting these missionaries that John has sent. So John is a true teacher, obviously he's an apostle, and so he's sending out teachers, he's sending out missionaries to teach true doctrine. And one of the things that Diotrephes is doing is he's rejecting those messengers. Now, here's why that's a big deal. When you reject the messenger, 
you are rejecting what stands behind the messenger. So if China kicks out an American ambassador, he's not just kicking out an ambassador, he in a sense is kicking out America. That ambassador just stands for something bigger than themselves. In the same way, to reject John's missionaries, to reject John's teachers, is to reject John and therefore the Bible, since he is an author of Scripture. Matthew 10, 40-42. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward, okay? So another thing you're seeing with Diotrephes, in addition to rejecting these missionaries, is that he is doing Lone Ranger church discipline. He's kicking people out of the church We don't know if it's actual excommunication or if he's just running them off, but either way, he's kicking them out of the church and he doesn't have the church involved with it. So what some churches will do is when they do church discipline, by the way, if you don't know what church discipline is, we have several teachings about this online. The Bible teaches that if somebody is in hard-hearted, unrepentant sin, that eventually they don't get the blessings of the people of God. They have to be removed from your midst, okay? If you wanna know more about that, check out those online. But what happens is what some churches do when they do church discipline is the church doesn't do it, just the pastors do it. The pastors kick somebody else out and then they tell the church that that person is kicked out. We don't do that here at Parkway because we don't want to be diatrophies. Matthew 18 says that if they don't listen to one, you go to to them with another. If they don't listen to that, you tell it to the ecclesia, to the assembly, to the church. So that's what we do here at Parkway. In the discipline cases we've had at a member meeting, because that's really those that are us, at a member meeting we say, hey, this person is walking in sin. They're not kicked out yet, but we want to give you time to know, to pray, to reach out to them if you need to before they are removed. Diotrephes is not doing that. He's just kicking people out by himself and it's abuse of church power. So if you're keeping count, to quote Jared, if you've got your kind of uh, bad pastor bingo card, here are the things that Diotrephes is doing. There's six things. One, he puts himself in his ministry first. Number two, he's drifted from the authority of the Bible. Number three, he slanders true teachers. Number four, he shuns those linked to true teachers. Number five, he stops others from trying to help true true teachers. And then number six, he puts those who try to help true teachers out of the church, okay? Now, here's something that I find that's interesting that we're able to glean from this text. The people in Diotrephes' church are standing up against him. The people in Diotrephes' church are standing up against him, which is why he's kicking them out. So here's what you need to understand. Who holds the most authority in the local church? Let me ask the question that way. Obviously Jesus, I know, but apart from Jesus, who holds the most authority in the local church? You might be tempted to say the elders, but that's not right. You know who holds the most authority in the local church? Whoever is biblically right. Whoever is biblically right, okay? If you're the person with the right interpretation of scripture in God's eyes, you hold the, the most authority within the local church. This is, we're, we're Protestants. This is what we believe as being people who are reformed. Luther believed that a farmer with his German New Testament, if he's interpreting it correctly, holds more power than the Pope. Now, obviously, I believe as an elder that our elders are right on these kind of issues, but ultimately, if we were to try to lead you into sin or something that's wrong, you, like Diotrephes' church, would have a right to say, we're not doing that. Do you know the, you know the best way you keep your church from drifting? Is by having a biblically literate laity. You guys, most drifts in church history have started top down. The leadership drifts first and then other people follow. 
But that's one of the reasons we want to teach you the Bible because we don't want Parkway to drift. We care about doctrinal fidelity and we don't want it to drift. So if we start saying five years from now, you know what, I think homosexuality is not that sinful. You can sit down with us and say, that's not what you've been teaching me for the last 10 years or whatever it might be. So notice that these people are rebelling in a sense against Diotrephes' authority, but rightfully so because they're right. They're siding with John, the apostle, and not with this particular false teacher. So how should we think about that as it relates to elders? In the same way that I gave you some alliteration with some M words, I'm going to give you some alliteration with some A words. Are you ready? I, don't, I didn't make a slide for this. I should have. I came up with this later though. When it comes to what the elders tell you, there can be three categories. Authority, administration, and advice. There are your three A's. Authority, administration, advice. If the elders are telling you something that the Bible says, you have to submit to that, not because of us, but because of the Bible. So if we sit down with somebody and say, you don't have biblical grounds for divorce, that's not us giving you Parkway's view, that's us giving you God's view. Or if we sit down and we say, hey, you're getting drunk and you need to stop getting drunk, that's not Parkway's stance, that's God's stance. So there are issues of authority. When it comes to the Bible, the Bible trumps everything. The Bible is the thing that stands above everything else. The second category is administration. And in that, you also submit to the elders. Things like this. We decided that church services will start at 1030. You can't start a revolt and be like, we want 11 o'clock services or something like that. The church has a right, the elders have a right to do certain things of administration how we're going to take communion and what we're going to do in these kind of events and how we're going to do our worship service, that also falls under the elder's purview. But the last category is simply advice. Now, don't get me wrong. To the best of our ability, we're going to give you the most biblical advice we can. But that level is just that. It's just advice. I've seen churches kick people, or I've seen leaders in churches kick people out of their churches just because they didn't listen to their advice. You don't get to do that. If your wife passes away, and we say to you, hey, you might want to wait a few months before dating again, that might be wise. But if you decide to start dating again, you've not sinned. You've not sinned. There's wisdom with many counselors. You should generally heed our advice, in my opinion. Obviously, I'm biased, but you should generally heed our advice. But at the same time, we can't confuse those different categories. When it comes to areas of doctrine, if the elders are interpreting the Bible correctly, that's what stands. When it comes to issues of administration, how the church is run, that stands. When it comes to mere advice, though, it is advice. Usually it's right and you should take it, but you're not sinning if you do not. Well, is this a weird sermon? I feel like it's a weird sermon. We're going through a pandemic. I'm like, let me tell you a bunch of bad pastors out there. That's what expository preaching does. It makes us talk about things we normally wouldn't talk about because God wants us to know these things. It's not a pastor getting up every Sunday and being like, here's what I think the people need to hear. God knows what we need to hear because he's put it in his word. So let me end with the gospel. Whereas Diotrephes is a bad pastor and he's drifting from the apostles, what a good pastor will do is they will talk about the gospel, the once for all delivered to the saints gospel. So please hear this, please hear this. Christianity is not about you being a good person. There are no good people biblically. There's bad people in Jesus and everybody has to fit into one of those two categories. Christianity is not about you trying harder to clean yourself up. Christianity is not about you being a good American or a good citizen. Christianity is not about you just being a conservative person. Christianity is not about any of the things we have a tendency to think that it's about. Here's what Christianity is about. There is only one God who is a trinity and we have given him as humanity the finger. We have walked away from him, we have cursed his name, and we've said, I don't want you to be God, we want to be God, and the world became broken. Why is there evil in the world if God is good? Because we deserve this, because we walked away from the source of all good and all joy and all life. 
That's why the world is broken. Everything was perfect and we messed it up. But because God is merciful, because God loves humans, he has sent the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God, to fix it, to come down as a man while remaining God, truly God and truly man, to live the life that we should have lived. All the places where I've broken God's commands, Christ has obeyed. When a beautiful woman walks by, he averts his eyes. When he wants to punch the Pharisees in the mouth, he turns the other cheek. He does all the stuff we don't wanna do. He keeps God's commands because we don't keep them. When there's an anxious thought in his mind, he trusts God. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's sweating blood, it's still, thy will be done, not mine. And he dies on a cross to take the punishment we deserve. When you rebel against the author of life, the punishment is death. And so Christ takes that death for us. He's raised from the grave. He's raised from the dead, showing that he is God's son. He is the king of the world. And one day he is coming back and he's gonna fix everything. He's gonna judge his enemies, those that don't know Christ. Hell is real and hell is scary. I swear to you, an infinite God can make you hurt like you can't imagine. But if you will simply trust in Christ, God offers you a full pardon for all sins, past, present, and future. If you don't know Christ, or if you're not sure that you know Christ, make today your spiritual birthday. Repent and bow the knee and ask Jesus to save you, and he will. But Zach, I'm too dirty. There is no too dirty. The blood of Christ covers whatever you've done. But Zach, I don't feel like I can get out of this struggle. You don't have to get out of the struggle. Jesus has not come to save the righteous, but sinners. So if you're a sinner, if you're a big sinner, take heart, because that's who Jesus has come to save. And God's love for you is, it's, it's unimaginable. Here's a little game I play with my son. My son's name is Judah, he's four, he'll be five soon. And what, we, what I ask him is I ask him, Judah, when you're happy, does daddy love you? He says, yes. When you're sad, does daddy love you? Yes. Even when you disobey, does daddy love you? Yes. He used to not say that. He used to say no, and I'd say no. Daddy does love you even when you disobey. Does daddy love you when you are being obedient? Yes. Does daddy love you when you're being disobedient? Yes. Daddy loves me all the time. He said this this last week. He said, daddy, you love me even if I don't love you. And I said, that's right. My love for you is not dependent upon your love for me. I've just decided to set my love on you because you're my son. There's nothing you can do to lose it. I just love you. Even if I don't love you, correct. Even if you don't love me, I still love you. And they said, you just disciplined me because I just need to learn to obey, but you still love me. And I was like, I was about to start crying. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Some of you need to hear that from God. God loves you when you obey and he loves you when you disobey. He loves you when you're doing well and he loves you when you're not doing well. Even when you don't love him, he loves you. God's love is not dependent upon you. You don't affect God. God is doing just fine by himself. You don't give him a good and bad days. God has just decided to set his love on you and you don't get to tell him who he gets to love. That's his decision. And he's decided to set it on those that know Christ. Let's pray as we get ready to partake of communion. Almighty God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you even for this strange text. And I pray that you would uh, bless the time as we move into communion. I pray that if there's somebody here who doesn't know you, that they might come to know you, that they might love you, that they might trust Christ. We thank you for this opportunity to gather. We pray for those that can't be with us. We pray that you'd bless them in their homes. We love you and thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for what you've given us. We pray for a quick end to this difficult season. I pray that in the meantime, we would remember that it is a bullhorn screaming out that mankind cannot solve our own problems. 
The greatest minds in the world don't know what to do. And yet you do. You're sovereign. Would you help us? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.